Hello, and welcome to episode 94 of the Tennis Abstract podcast. My name is Jeff Sackman from TennisAbstract.com, and with me is my co-host, Carl Bialik. Hi there, Carl. Hey, Jeff. Um, Carl is also the host of the 30 Love podcast, which has a recent episode released with author Tim Wigmore, so check that out. And in the spirit of uh, encouraging you to listen to other podcasts before we get rolling with this one, um, you should also... Check in on my Expected Points Daily Tennis Podcast, which is uh, just three or four minutes per day with uh, a few numbers to highlight interesting stuff from every day's action in tennis. And also our uh, COVID-19 podcast, Dangerous Exponents, which is also with Carl and I now up to 13 episodes. And you can find that at DangerousExponents.com. those of you who are regular Tennis Abstract Podcast listeners know that we now have a book club, and we're currently reading uh, John Updike's tennis-tinged novel, Couples. We'll be talking about that in a couple weeks. All that out of the way, today's topic is injuries, and the, the way in which injuries have become a bigger factor in tennis, uh, some of the specific injury stuff that's come up at the Australian Open during this fortnight, the way we think about players having injuries and how that's related to, to fatigue and injury management and all that stuff. It's a, it's a big, uh, kind of hairy and sometimes vague issue, and I hope to, to clarify some things with Carl's help here and get a better understanding of really just how we should think about the role of injuries in modern tennis. So... Let's just start with with some basics here in uh, injury management. This this idea that all, all players have some nagging issues pretty much all the time. Um, maybe it won't keep them from playing their best, but they have something to think about. But just because they're playing so much tennis so much of the time, because the game is so physically demanding, it seems like all of these trends are moving in the same direction. That it's getting harder. That injuries are becoming a bigger factor. That players have to think about it more. Carl, let's start with that. I mean. It, it, do you agree that that's the direction we're going? I think it's generally the direction. I, I'm curious how having a lot of players play a lot less than usual, or at least a lot less in, in competitive matches over the last 12 months, how that's changed things. That th- there seems to be some awareness that for some players that itself can can lead to to more injuries or more risk of injury when going back to pl- to playing competitive matches. But yeah, in general, it does seem like the long-term trend has been to uh, more more playing, but also longer careers. And I, I think that that is something worth probing more in terms of, does that mean that players have gotten better about reducing injury, about playing with injury, about coming back from injury? Have, have the incentives just changed and, and they were always capable of doing it? But I think that's something worth weighing too if we're, if we're trying to spot the long-term trend here. Yeah, it's it seems like there's there's two two parts of a career there's two parts of a career that are are the most dangerous for players. One is the beginning. We've seen a number of players who've who've either struggled early in their career with injuries. I mean, a couple that well, one that comes to mind is is CC Bellis, the young American who was just out for almost two years. I think. Um, and it seems to happen to a number of players that they run into problems early on. Maybe it's because they 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 hit the the rigors of the tour for the first time. And then there's sort of the, the after 30, when, when players are getting older, their bodies aren't reacting the way they used to, uh, but they still try to play as much. And both of them can end careers. And I think that in the old days, they tended to end careers more. I mean, there were more players who got hurt early and just, you know, went to college and did something else or 
30-somethings who got injured the first time and weren't able to come back. Like, for instance, we have Roger Federer coming back next month from another surgery. I mean, the equivalent of Roger Federer, if there could be such a thing 20 years ago, he doesn't come back. I mean, he, he's already a commentator or a coach or, or living happily ever after in Switzerland doing none of those things. But he's not contemplating a comeback. That was a lot a lot rarer for a late 30-something to do uh, not even that long ago. And, and now we have so many 30-something players hanging on. And, I mean, some of that is clearly because certain types of medical technology are better. There are problems that can be solved. There are problems that can be managed. Do you think, Carl, that there it's more than just medical advancements that that players are better at sort of managing their health for an entire career so that fewer issues crop up after they turn 30? Is, is it more of a, a long-term problem to solve? It seems like players have more awareness, in, even in their early 20s, about not overplaying uh, that there's there's awareness about the risks of developing a style that requires more uh, more running around the court and and maybe more um, just more general exposure to injury risk. So it, it does seem like maybe the just increasing professionalization all the time, not just with the sort of obvious of like a physio and a massage therapist and other people who can who can keep you on track, but maybe among coaches and among management teams, at least for those players who can afford all of that, has really increased. And, you know, there's also just, it's easier now if you aren't one of the wealthiest players to maybe be apprised of all the latest thinking on this. Um, but, you know, it, it. I wonder if, we, if we've actually nailed the science here, given just the the intrinsic characteristics of, of certain players that other players can't really hope to to copy. I mean, th- there may just be something about Federer's um, physical makeup that isn't uh, a result of his game, but maybe one of the causes of his game that has made him able to to keep playing at 38 last year, and and we'll see about 39. So um, you know, there are probably limits to how much players can can achieve, can change about the trajectory of their career, but maybe maybe those limits are, are not so great given the extent to which we've seen players stretch it, including players we might have guessed wouldn't still be playing at such a high level at this point, like uh, Rafa and Djokovic and maybe Serena. Yeah, definitely, Serena. You said we'll see about 39 with Federer, and that's true, but we have already seen about 39 with Serena this week as she's charged past all of my favorite players to to land in the semifinals already um yeah you you mentioned Rafa and even before you mentioned it by name I I wanted to to bring him up is you mentioned that like players are aware of certain game styles that, that are riskier and that sounds right but I don't I don't get the sense that players are making choices to avoid those game styles. I mean, if anything, more players are choosing to play like Rafa and like Djokovic. Um, you don't see a lot of guys who are becoming servant volleyers because it's less it's less um, exhausting or, or, or less damaging to the body. I mean, am I missing something there? Do you think that players are, are, are making choices at the level of their game style to prolong their careers? I think that some players have taken steps to be slightly more 
aggressive within the style that, that suits them naturally. Like, I'm not sure that um, the young players who are closer to, to Djokovic or, or Nadal uh, consciously chose to be so much as that players who excel at that are, are going to excel because those are two of the greatest players of all time, but that maybe within the context of being able to, to replicate certain parts of their game that they've uh, found ways to become slightly more aggressive. But I'm talking to the guy who has the data that would prove or disprove that. So I don't know. Do we, Is there any evidence that players become more aggressive slash shortened points later in their career? I, I, I have some sense that maybe Nadal has, has done that, but maybe I've just listened to too many commentators who are guessing that that's the case, and I don't really know that it is. Yeah, I, I don't know. In theory, I have the data. It's it's not something I've specifically looked at. It's also a tricky thing once you dig too much into it because point length and then however you measure aggression is, is so much based on opponent. I mean, if you're serving volleying, or you're hitting big shots all the time, a la Petra Kvitova or something, then then yeah, you'll look aggressive no matter what your opponent does. But if you are more of a, a counterpuncher, your your numbers will look different because you're playing Kvitova than playing another counterpuncher. Uh, even when you try to control for that, it gets messy. So it, it's tough when these when when these things are changing at the at the tour wide level. But it would be interesting to. To better answer that question, I yeah, you're right. Commentators are talking about Nadal being more aggressive to to win to to finish points early. Uh, I don't hear the same things much about Djokovic. I don't think so. I'm not I'm not sure about that. And when you talk about those two guys, those are the ones who we hear commentators talk about the most. But I mean, it, it's 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 dangerous to start drawing tour wide conclusions from Rafael Nadal. He's just so unique that what he does is not necessarily indicative about what the pack is doing. I mean, in, in in general, I get the sense that players just play the way they play. I mean, you don't see Gilles Simone. I mean, my favorite example, um, Gilles Simone has not changed his game over the years. I, I don't think it, it, he just plays like Gilles Simone and that works as well as it works. Um, I mean, it, 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 is, it, is there more to this than just shortening points? I mean, that that's the, that's the obvious dimension to look at that, that, yeah, uh, hitting four shots per rally is harder than hitting two and so on. Um, you're doing a lot more running and you're, you're hitting these, these violent topspin um, contact shots over and over and over again. It's hard on the body. It adds up. It be, it, the, the fatigue is cumulative. But is, is, are there other ways to, to look at this beyond simply rally length, point length that would would give us a hint as to ways that players might be conserving their body more and hopefully making their careers last longer? Well, there's there's sort of match management, which is maybe another overrated idea. But, you know, if, if Rafa is the ultimate play every point as if it's his last of all time player, does... Does he do that less than he used to if he's down 40 love 5-2 or if he's up 40 love 5-2 in a set? Does he, is there evidence he he takes it easier on that point? I, my, my guess is there there isn't really and that that's not that significant, but I, I don't, I'm not sure where else to look in terms of, uh, in terms of during match play. I think there are a lot of things we can talk about and probably will talk about outside of specific matches that players might 
be doing uh, to prevent or, or mitigate injuries. But I'm not sure what what else we would we would find in a match. I mean, may, maybe like opponent's winner rate because if somebody's hit a shot that's good enough to possibly be a winner and you let it let it go for a winner as opposed to trying to chase it down when your odds of winning the point are, are pretty your probability of winning the point is pretty low then maybe that that's a, an indicator of taking smart um trade-offs but i don't know what, what do you think we're missing here well i i was hoping you had some good ideas but um and and I'm not saying you don't. One one thing that I would tack on is is managing rest time within the match, and that that's something that Nadal and Djokovic have been at the vanguard of, and I'm usually speaking more negatively about. But players take longer between points; they do it more consistently. Uh, many players, not just Nadal, have uh, have regimens they follow between points and on changeovers, and I don't know how much of a difference it really makes in the long term to take 25 seconds instead of 20 seconds or 38 seconds instead of 28 seconds in, in the case of Nadal. Um, but it can't hurt. I mean, in, the one thing I, I think we know about fatigue is that it is it is cumulative and it might be exponential. So, I mean, it, if, if you can stop that exponential from from you know, building up early in the process it's, it's it won't get it won't get a lot worse later on um and maybe one way to do that is take that extra five seconds between points uh, and the, i i think that we can say that tour wide that's happening um certainly a, a lot of young players fit that mold where they not just take a lot of time between points they do it consistently and casper is one guy who comes to mind who he will play longer points. He is a clay court grinder, but even when he doesn't, he's very deliberate. Um, maybe that's the sort of thing they teach you at the Nadal Academy in Majorca. Uh, but what, how that translates to adding a couple extra healthy years to your career, I don't know. But it, it does seem like it, it can't hurt, and that's one one angle that's not going to show up, at least in the traditional stats or even the, the match charting stats. I mean, do you think, Carl, that... It, a, do you think it, it has value? And B, do you think it's something players are consciously doing, thinking in a long-term kind of a way? My guess is like with a lot of these things, these are much more short-term decisions than long-term. Uh, but I guess we could try to track how it how it changes over over the course of a career if, if we had the data. Um, but it it seems un, unlikely to, to have like a, a really big impact. I mean, we're probably teasing tiny effects from tiny decisions and, and trying to see how those might add up and um, that we'd have a really hard time spotting an effect. Well, tennis is a game of tiny margins, so tiny effects matter. Um, but let's let's shift gears a little bit to, to the topic that really got me thinking about doing this right now. And most people listening are probably aware of, of Novak Djokovic's third round match against Taylor Fritz, in which he, he went up two sets to love, um, seemed to be cruising, and then started hurting visibly on court. It slowed him down. Um, he lost the next two sets 
through that time he was he was showing signs of, of physical pain and he managed to come back and and win the match maybe helped by the I think it was an eight minute delay while people filed out of the court maybe that was longer um, but I mean he, he had a little bit of extra time one person was joking on Twitter that that Djokovic fans should take as long as humanly possible to exit the arena because the the Melbourne lockdown was starting and fans had to leave at midnight um, if, if they took as long as possible, if they made the the ushers forcibly remove them, then it would give Djokovic more time to recover. But I don't think that's really what happened, but he did have a little extra time. Anyway, he did recover. He's, he's since advanced another couple rounds beyond that. But the the reactions to that have varied so much. Like Djokovic fans, of course, are, are rooting for him and, and happy that he recovered. Fritz was skeptical that he had faked the injury for tactical reasons. Some people can point at Djokovic's long history of having health ups and downs within matches. On the other hand, people are saying that, you know, why would you fake an injury when you're leading two sets to love? I mean, there's no tactical benefit to doing that when you don't need the, the tactical edge. But the broader issue here is that as we're talking about injury, injury management has become such a bigger factor in tennis, if you accept my premise here, that players are dealing with some sort of nagging issues virtually all the time. And 30-something players who are playing a lot, like Djokovic, probably are dealing with it more than other people are. And I, I'm not sure how to think about that as a fan. Like where it would, To know that if you're watching a big match, like today's thriller between Stefano Tsitsipas and Rafael Nadal, knowing that these two guys are not just dealing with fatigue, they're probably dealing with some physical issues. And the Djokovic-Fritsch match just made it a lot more obvious. Um, it made it the conversation about the match that Djokovic was dealing with these physical issues. So, so Carl, I'm curious about, about your thoughts on this. Like, it, it, does it, knowing this stuff, does it change the way that, that you watch tennis? Are you focused on different things? Or, I mean, do you think people are... Uh, do you think fans acknowledge the the extent to which players are dealing with this nagging stuff on a more or less ongoing basis? When we see Rafa now and we we think back to who Rafa is, if he's always been dealing with nagging injuries, although maybe they've gotten worse as he's gotten older, then maybe it doesn't change things as much because this is just what he looks like. Uh, and maybe the same with, with Novak, although maybe with him there are more exceptions where it's more visible in his play and in his his facial expressions, how he's how he's feeling. So I think it's I think it's possible to to not focus on it and not really notice it um, and just accept that that we're all at all times carrying some kind of physical uh, ailment or something that, that is holding us back or that we're having to, to overcome. But um, I, I I have noticed in some brands of commentary uh, a sort of obsession with it. Like, you know, he looked a little slow to his right there. I wonder if that nagging whatever is, has been has been affecting it. Um, and sort of like watching the match as if it's a, a piece of evidence for a medical diagnosis as opposed to a tennis match. And I can see the reason for that given how often it, it, it emerges during or after a match that that was a major factor. But, you know, part of what is involved in, in managing injuries when you are taking them into a match instead of deciding not to play it 
is still trying to find a way to win with it within those limitations. And that's part of what I was getting at with adjustments. Like maybe there hasn't been an overall adjustment over the course of Rafa's career, Novak's career, that would be evident that they're trying now more often to to lessen the wear and tear in their body or lessen the exposure of an injury. But maybe within a given match, if they're hurting more, they, they are able to do more of that or, or be more tactical in, in how they try to win given greater limitations than usual. And I think that that can be an interesting thing to watch for um, to the extent it's something real that's happening and not something we can just read into a point or two. And Djokovic might be a great example of that this, this week. I'm not sure how much his physical problems, whatever they are, um, go back to the beginning of the tournament, but... I, one of the numbers I highlighted on expected points yesterday was that he hit over 20 aces for only the fourth time in his career, and one of the previous times was also at the Australian Open. So he he had this tough match against Alexander Zverev in the quarterfinals, and it, we know he's not 100%. He's talking about some kind of tear, but not not publicizing all the details. And it, probably not a coincidence, probably not entirely based on the fast surface. This is a day that he's more aggressive on serve and, and serves up almost as many aces as he ever has in a single match in his career. So that's a, that, I think that's strong evidence in favor of the sort of thing you're talking about, that um, this might be one of those many reasons why the best players are the best players, that they're able to make these adaptations, whereas some of the other players, when they're hurting a little bit, they don't have a plan B or a plan C to move to like Djokovic has a plan D and a plan E and so on. Uh, a more, a, a, a specific time when it, it becomes obvious in a match that an injury is a factor is when somebody takes an MTO, a medical timeout. And that was the, one of the big stories today. Um, Karolina Mukova um, took a medical timeout. She went off court, had her blood pressure checked. She was struggling a lot with the heat in her match against Ashley Barty today. She lost the first set easily, came back from the MTO. I think she won five of six games after that and ended up, ended up winning the match. And I mean, Barty didn't really say anything bad about that or express too much skepticism, but the question's definitely in the air. And, and of course, some fans are out there being more skeptical. Uh, it seems like a lot of fans don't like this idea that you can take an MTO and come back recovered <laughs> or come back and play well. It's like an MTO should be like the the first sign that you're about to retire a game or two later. That's the only direction that's acceptable. Uh, and it, it an MTO is one form of, of injury management. Obviously, you get a break, you get a little uh, a, a little treatment. I mean, I am I am curious about the way that fans and pundits talk about these things or the, what the sort of conventional wisdom is i mean do you think we have a good collective understanding of what happens with with mtos given that it seems like they often do provide a momentum shift and we tend we never seem to expect it i mean to the extent that when somebody comes back and wins we we assume there's some kind of of wrongdoing involved i mean is that it seems like that's the wrong way to think about it. Do you agree that we need to revise the way we think about MTOs? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think fans don't like retirements mid-match either. And the the rules for MTOs are, are well-known, well-adjudicated. <laughs> uh, 
the players both have access to them and, and just about everyone has, has used one at one point or another. And it makes sense that a player who chooses to to use one would both be near a low point, like things have gotten so bad that I think I need this break slash treatment, and also would believe they have a chance to come back and win or at least come back and play better. Otherwise, why not just retire? And also wouldn't be so severely injured that they would think they need to retire. So while it's something that has affected their play and uh, that they might need treatment for, it's not a deal breaker. So it, it sort of selects for players in situations where a comeback would be particularly likely. And there's also this whole notion of like, but it rattles the opponent. It's it's unfair what it does to the opponent. But players who get to the stage where we're seeing them and talking about them have to get good at a lot of things. And one of them is dealing with surprises from the other side. And some of that is like tactics and shot selection and, and level of play. And some of it is bathroom breaks and time between points and, and various rituals. And I mean, th- that's just another skill. And maybe it's not a skill we're very excited about or that we think players need to have, but I think they need to have it because this, this is a part of the game. Um, one thing I think we don't really understand well is what is the actual treatment part of it like what you know we we often see something happening in a conversation happening but we don't really know what is what is the thing they were just given what is the discussion they had that that helped clarify it and i think that's that's maybe like the most mysterious part of all of it just because in our own experiences we're not used to seeing someone medically for that short a time and having any real effect so i think there's probably more we could learn there yeah, that's an, a fascinating thing about watching old tennis videos because in the period of time where there was a fair amount of tennis on national TV in the U.S., there were these big productions. There would be a courtside reporter. I guess there's still some courtside reporters, but you know, Pam Shriver or somebody would be would be down at courtside talking to coaches and family and so on. And occasionally would talk to the physio. I've seen interviews where right after a physio gives treatment to a player, they they come back, they sit in the stands, and then the courtside reporter goes down and says, "So, what's Steffi's issue? What what did you do for her?" And they would answer. <laughs> like it, it seems like that's probably a HIPAA violation in the U.S. now, but they would they would say like okay, she's struggling with some tightness in her hip and I just rubbed it down a little bit and gave her a painkiller or whatever. But they they would tell you the whole story. And I, I think the door is totally closed on that now for for all sorts of reasons. One of them is that the, the, the physios themselves, along with line judges, are so much more anonymous now. It's sort of um, anonymous cogs in the whole system. But um, But I agree, it would be nice to have more transparency in that process even if we're unlikely to get it just because the the types of injuries that um that end matches are often very different from the type of injuries that that bring about mtos because i mean and there isn't a very high threshold for for an mto and if you have some small thing that might just be a little bit more than a cramp or it might just be a little bit of a of a spasm related to some ongoing thing that you know how to handle or you know how to play through uh, that's that's enough to give you the five minute break that people will then say threw off your opponent. Um, so what about players who who have a reputation for not doing this kind of thing? As you hinted, Carl, there's 
there's sort of a gamesmanship aspect that is inferred, even if it doesn't really exist. I mean, there are players who do use MTOs for some gamesmanship. Yulia Putintseva comes to mind, uh, but there are others. And there are also players who, who have the opposite reputation. And you mentioned Federer earlier as a sort of picture of health, at least until the last few years. And he's one guy who has basically never retired from a match, rarely withdraws from a match, uh, has started taking more MTOs in recent years, but for a long time basically never took MTOs either. And people seem to love it. There's a certain purity associated with that level of, of health and consistency. And if if Federer was taking medical timeouts at the rate of a, of, of a Djokovic, let's say, do you think that would change how we look at him? I mean, do you think part of the Federer image is related to the fact that he's this guy who is untouched by injuries? It probably would change. I can think of some just miserable matches that he played apparently injured that um, maybe he should have retired from or taken a, a match timeout. And there are also, in recent years, some some walkovers he's given that maybe he gave, because not because he couldn't possibly go out there and play, but because he couldn't be sure he, he wouldn't need to retire or, or take a medical timeout. So I, I think it has become part of the image, for sure. Um, and I, I imagine with tennis players, there can be such formative moments for them, like maybe him watching a match as a kid and hearing commentators admire some player for not for not ever um retiring or or you know something a coach told him once or or realizing partway through his career that it's something he'd been able to avoid um but you know i'm thinking of like his australian open semi against djokovic last year or in the Davis Cup final in 2014 against Gael Monfils, just like matches where he wasn't able to play his best and, and maybe was risking further injury, um, but but played them out. Uh, and it's something we saw from Dimitrov this week as well uh, in the match he ended up losing the quarterfinal to Karatsev. So, uh, yeah, I think, I think it can become part of someone's mystique and allure, and then it can become that way in their in their heads as well. Yeah, that, that's interesting. It really only takes one time that you get booed for a mid-match retirement, or like you say, you could have even just watched something as a TV as a kid that would uh, would form a value like that. So another another angle I wanted to to take at this issue is, is gets us at the the notion of, of predicting results and uh, and evaluating our predictions, which is something that we bring up on just about every episode in some form or other, and. One of the things that's, that, that, I don't know whether frustrating is the right word, but one of the things that's an ongoing issue when you're predicting ten, tennis matches is just accepting the fact that you're very often wrong. Even if you're really good, you're often wrong. I mean, the, the best, the, the best um, match tippers are m- missing a third of the time, maybe more of the time, unless they're only predicting the, the lopsided matches. It's just the way things go. I mean, aside from a very lopsided head-to-head, uh, underdogs are winning a fair number of matches. And some of that's just the luck of the draw. I mean, the, the margin in tennis are small. So, you know, a few let cords or, you know, a bad line call or something can tip a match in the opposite direction. 
there's just good days and bad days. But it seems like some of the things we're talking about are very pertinent here, that if players are dealing with fatigue at various degrees, if they are dealing with injuries in different ways, maybe some players are more likely to take an MTO that would benefit them than others are. Uh, Maybe they did so in the previous round. I don't know. There's so many explanations along these lines of why players would be 100% or 85% or, or some other level of fit. Uh, going into a match that would explain some of the variation in match results. And I, I wonder how you think about that, Carl. You, you, when when you see a, a head-to-head of like five and three or something, when it seems like the players were mostly the same guys from one meeting to the next, like how much of those, of, of those three, let's say, unexpected losses can you write off to something like this? I mean, do you look for an injury or do you assume it's it's some other factor we can't spot or do you think it's luck? I mean, how do you think about that? Well, I think this comes back to our discussion of they're probably always carrying some kind of injuries. And given that and that there's, there's sort of there's some range of, of level they can be in injury-wise and otherwise – if they're showing up to a match and, and trying to play it, um, that other factors, you mentioned luck, there's surface, there's uh, what happened in their last match, how comfortable was their flight. I don't know. It, it just seems like a um, maybe maybe for a first-round match where you don't have the evidence that they're good enough to have, have won recently at the same tournament. But... Uh, but otherwise, I just think there's so many other sources of variation in tennis that uh, this doesn't necessarily have to be the the dominant one or, or even the biggest one. What, what do you think? Well, yeah, and the other the other relevant issue that you brought up earlier is that yes, the injuries are a factor, but maybe the bigger factor, certainly another factor, is the player's ability to work around them. Uh, or even just their game style in general. I mean, certain types of injuries are going to affect some players more than others. Uh, somebody like Djokovic is probably a lot better at playing while carrying certain types of injuries, even apart from the fact that he's just flat out better than most of his peers. Uh, I mean, at, at some level, I'm generally not terribly interested in this. I mean, it, it, when I put my you know match predictor hat on, I care about this stuff I can quantify, and I ignore the other stuff. I mean, these issues we've been discussing are interesting, and they're the sort of thing that I think about a lot watching matches and thinking about what the commentators are saying. But if I have to look at a matchup and stick a number on it, then unless I can quantify their injury history or I want to look at how often they retire from matches or how often they did so lately, I'm going to ignore it. And that doesn't mean that I would say it's all luck, but the stuff that you can't quantify, you just have to treat as luck. I mean, it's, it means you have wider error bars, but I'm not sure what the alternative is aside from, you know, getting a medical degree and then stealing the medical info of the players. I'm not sure what the alternative is. Um, So yeah, it's, it, it, it's tricky when you know that players are, are are varying in their what they're physically capable of so much from one day to the next. And I'm curious also about this intersection between fatigue and injury. Obviously, some injuries are brought about by fatigue, uh, and 
sometimes like they will move hand in hand like a player who is is accumulating injuries over the course of a of a tournament is probably also accumulating fatigue so it's it's impossible to separate them but i'm but i'm curious carl how you would weigh the two like if, if you're looking at players who've played a lot a lot of long matches through a tournament i mean do you think fatigue is a bigger issue or do you think like the assorted injuries they have or haven't picked up through the tournament are, are going to affect the result more Ooh. And I guess we accept that these are separate things. Um, well, yeah, I mean, that, 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 that's the problem. You can't really separate them. But I mean, I think that to some degree, they are different. I mean, you can, you, can have an, you can have an ankle injury that's totally independent of fatigue. You can be fatigued in a way that doesn't mean you're unhealthy. It just means, you know, you're, you're quicker to be winded, that sort of thing. So to the, to the extent we can separate them. Yeah, I, I, I have a hunch that injury is a bigger factor. On the other hand, once we're comparing the two, it means that we're talking about players who have just won a bunch of matches. And yeah, maybe like Djokovic, they're just so good, period, and at managing injury and fatigue that they're going to be better than their opponent, but the margins are smaller than usual and the cumulative effect is bigger maybe. But in general, we're talking about players that have selected themselves into a position where we can have this this conversation and yeah i mean i think the the studies i've seen you do and maybe i've done in a more simplistic way and other people have done suggest that fatigue isn't really a a very big factor it's not a clear factor in one direction or another uh especially because it's hard to separate from well are you fatigued because you're playing longer matches than expected and that means you're actually not playing that well and so what's causing it and what's affecting it uh Whereas an injury could be a more extreme uh, effect. Although, again, if you've made it through, I guess it can't be as extreme. I mean, Djokovic does have a history of going pretty deep into tournaments where he seems visibly injured and, and says he's injured, like the 2016 U.S. Open, where he almost won the thing carrying an injury. Um, so it's 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 hard to to say that it, it, it's a really big factor when someone has reached a final while carrying an injury, which means they've, they've gotten through six rounds. As, as you and I tend to do, Carl, we've, we've spent a lot of this episode kind of going back and forth on the very issues that I'm choosing to bring up. Like, there's a lot of counterexamples to every example we, we bring up, and, and you've just given perhaps the, the biggest one that... It, like for, for fatigue, players are going to be in the same position. Um, like obviously, both players have played several matches by the end of a tournament. Um, the injuries we hear about are often from the players who have survived well into a tournament. So unless they're picking up extra injuries on off days and coming out particularly bad in their following match, like they're they're playing with injuries that they've won with recently. So it seems like maybe we're overstating all of this stuff. Like we've, I've chosen to devote this entire episode to injuries. So, I mean, maybe we're particularly guilty of this problem, but you hinted earlier that commentators really like to talk about this stuff. It's very visible if someone's limping a little bit or their, their forehead motions different or their shoulder is causing problems with their serve. But it seems like we're also coming up with a lot of anecdotal evidence that it's not that big a factor that maybe, maybe we're barking up the wrong tree. do you think that maybe this is an issue that gets overemphasized by 
by commentators and by by writers simply because it's a it's an easy thing to point to and discuss compared to some of the nitty gritty tactical or more more on court tennis specific stuff that they could be writing about instead. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's partly to do with the don't have data to back this up, but my observation of the trend in sports writing generally toward like long-term future stories as opposed to the the games happening right now so you know what what does this abdominal injury mean for Djokovic's quest for 20 as opposed to you know he's got a semifinal today um or you know in, in other sports like the bigger focus on the draft and on and on free agency uh, even during a season when there there are teams trying to win the championship, so I think I think there's there's some of that at play. Uh, I think also we happen to have this um, this exact quest that I just mentioned of Djokovic trying to catch Nadal and Federer, Nadal trying to pass Federer. Um, they're all in their 30s and and not not their the start of their 30s. So what you know. This is this is all part of that like bigger story of of how long can they stick around? How long can they stay at the top of the sport? Can they set records? Uh, certainly for Serena, trying to to catch and pass Margaret Court for career Slam titles. Similar questions. Um, so you know, I think that's that's part of the the greater interest. And um, yeah, I, I think that there's also. Uh, sort of a general phenomenon at slams, early at slams, we need stories, here's a story, lots of retirements and walkovers, what the hell is happening to tennis, damn hard courts, so many injury risks. And then right now you have the the additional story of pandemic, quarantine, inability to leave the room at all, and hard quarantine for many players, uh, people kind of looking for this storyline to emerge uh, based on what we saw coming into the tournament. So I, I think all three of these things maybe play into us hearing so much about it right now. Yeah, and to, t- to tack on a little bit to that, like uh, I uh, I know this is cynical, but I get the sense sometimes that, that, that commentators and especially many, not all, but many tennis journalists will will choose a story that's not about tennis over a story that is about tennis um, every day of the week. Like, and, and you, you, I guess the injuries are at least tangentially about tennis, but it's it's easier to write about personality type stuff and and talk about like injuries and comments about injuries than it is to talk about what's really happening on court. And I mean, that's something I've complained about in other contexts as well. So I won't, I won't belabor the point. Um, but you've mentioned twice now the, the quarantine issue, and maybe that's one elephant in the room that I've avoided. I mean, it, it is, it is very pertinent right now since a few players in this tournament basically hadn't played for a year. I mean, Ashley Barty comes to mind Nick Kyrgios basically took the last year off. Um, both of them are already out of the tournament, even though there was some chance that they would, would go further. Um, ESPN did a little, I'm not sure whether I can call it a study, but a little bit of a study looking at how the the players who were in hard quarantine fared so far. And Jennifer Brady has done very well. She's in the semifinal, despite having those that extra week in a hotel room. But the other the other 54 players are, are long since eliminated from the tournament. So that's seems like it might be a factor we could complicate that story a little bit but it seems like it's a factor um i mean is is, just in 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 a in a broad sense do you think that that that's been overplayed as well that like 
given that the preparation for this tournament has been different, that, that players' routines for the last year have been disrupted, in, obviously that's a big story for virtually every player uh, in the tournament, but do you think it's being overdone? Like, Do you think there's that doesn't explain results very much or, or is it really like this, this big factor that tells us a lot about how individual players are, are prepared or not for the Australian open? Well, you, it it seems from your numbers that it, it wasn't so clear that it made such a big difference. And maybe more broadly, we could say, we could go in naively and say like, okay, based on the results so far, a, was there something that disrupted the normal rhythms and expectations of this tournament more than usual? Uh, and and was it in a way that we could sort of like identify with, with some degree of confidence who are the players most likely to have been affected by uh, a flawed preparation? And having done neither study, I, I'm going to very lazily guess that the answer is that this is kind of how this is like within very much within the realm of possibility if everyone had about the same preparation they normally would have that the the favorites are winning at about the expected rate that kind of the, the names in the semifinals while there are a few there's one giant surprise on the men's side and and a couple of small surprises on the women's side that it's it's nothing out of the realm of the ordinary that, that that's my hunch um what do you think yeah i mean it, i i I've looked at this a number of times at various stages of the the tour's restart that favorites are winning about the clip that you'd expect. So it it isn't like the tour has been turned upside down by the fact that preparation has been different. Um, I'm not quite sure what to make of the numbers about the players in hard quarantine yet. I mean, that's more, more specific to just one disrupted week that other players were able to practice and they weren't. And and it's, it's not intuitively clear to me whether it's it, it's a huge disadvantage because like, you wouldn't expect many of those players to advance far in the tournament. A couple of them, Bianca Andreescu and Belinda Bencic, were already coming back from injuries, so they were probably overrated a little bit by their seeds or the WT rankings at this point. So it's it's really tough. I mean, it's, it's sort of um, it, it's sort of a he said she said where one side is is the media with this big obvious story that people want to talk about so naturally that's what they're going to cover and what they're going to ask about in press conferences and and the other side of i guess us being normally skeptical raising our eyebrows at the idea that tennis players can't adapt to this like they adapt to all kinds of other stuff so i mean to me the burden of proof is always on somebody saying this time is different because usually it isn't Usually, not you can use the past as a good predictor of of the present, and I need to see some pretty good evidence to suggest anything otherwise. And I have not seen that. Um, and the further along in the restart we get, I mean, I'm not sure whether we can even really call it a restart anymore, unless the tours are seriously disrupted again. We'll just keep creeping back to normal, and eventually, this issue—at least I hope so—the the issue will disappear. We won't be talking about it at all anymore. We'll be back to the normal range of, of injuries that we can uh, we can disproportionately focus on. So, uh, on that note of of sort of half baked media criticism um, and the the usual tennis abstract uncertainty and regression to the mean, 
I think that's about it for this episode. Carl, um, I, I like to give you an opportunity to, to, to add on to whatever I forgot or whatever else you'd like to respond to in my last thoughts. So, so any, any final things you'd like to leave our listeners with? Well, I, I glossed over that there's one giant surprise on the men's side, partly because I'm not totally confident in my pronunciation of his name. But if he goes on to, to beat Djokovic in the semis and that's injury-aided and could be maybe counted as his third injury-aided upset and then ends up winning the tournament, then, then maybe this episode will sound different. Yeah, a lot of things will sound different. <laughs> I mean, that would be... Yeah, going on to win the tournament would be a massive upset. I think if he does win the semifinal, then then yeah, we'll be pointing at the injuries a lot harder. But even then, like the, there are plenty of of historical examples of of injuries affecting semifinal matches, even if they don't usually mean that the number one player in the world is losing them. Um, but yeah, that would that would give us some rethinking to do. So. On that note, let's uh, look forward to Aslan Karatsev's first appearance in the major semifinal. Uh, thank you, Carl, for joining me for our injury discussion here. Thanks, Jeff. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Uh, just the usual range of reminders. Check out the Daily Expected Points podcast. You can find it on TennisAbstract.com. You can follow me on Twitter at TennisAbstract. You can find Carl on Twitter at Carl Bialik. You can find his podcast uh, by searching for the 30 love podcast you can listen to us talking about the pandemic at dangerousexponents.com all of this stuff is usually linkable in some form or other from uh, tennisabstract.com or the tennis abstract blog so you can pretend you didn't just listen to that one minute rundown uh, and spend that time instead uh, reading john updike's couples the next book in our tennis abstract podcast book club so thanks again everyone for listening and enjoy the rest of the Australian Open and we'll talk to you next time.